On March 25, 1911, a Manhattan sweatshop, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, caught fire, claiming the lives of 148 people, mostly young women, in a matter of minutes. With doors locked to prevent theft and insufficient fire escapes, many of the workers jumped to their deaths from the upper floors of the building, rather than risk being burned alive. The fire shocked the entire nation, changed safety rules forever, and left a haunting in its wake. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here Every day, Comcast Business is helping businesses big and small go beyond the expected to do the extraordinary. Because beyond a simple transaction, there is making a customer for life. Comcast Business. Beyond fast. Take your business beyond at ComcastBusiness.com. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I'm constantly posting content exclusively for patrons, archive episodes of Weird Darkness, personal videos, full chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating, and more. You can learn more and become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes. Or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. And a huge welcome to my newest patrons, Christopher Shade and another Chris who decided to not leave his last name, wishing to remain somewhat anonymous, I guess. Welcome to the Weirdo family, Chris's, and thank you so much for supporting what I do. This episode is brought to you by Send Out Cards. It's a service I've been using for years, I absolutely love it, and you don't have to leave the house, you don't have to buy stamps, and still, you get a physical card in the mail with whatever message you wish to send. You can choose from hundreds of existing cards on the site, or you can create one completely from scratch on your own, using your own photos if you wish. Try it now absolutely free by visiting sendoutcards.com weird. That's sendoutcards.com slash weird. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. Moving in with your in-laws is already stressful enough. Now imagine that their home is haunted. We've all heard of haunted houses, haunted hospitals, haunted prisons or jails, but have you ever heard of a haunted submarine sandwich shop? The History, Hauntings, and Horrors of America's Worst Factory Fire The horrifying story of Teresa Knorr, who, in the 1980s, brutally murdered her two daughters with the help of her sons. And at the end of this episode, I'll read some of the latest podcast reviews that you've been kind enough to leave on Apple Podcasts. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness.
The Ash Building, on the corner of Green Street and Washington Place, was a rather nondescript ten-story building. The owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, rented or subcontracted out the lower seven floors of the building to various other similar enterprises. They saved the eighth, ninth, and tenth floors for the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory, which they operated to make ladies' blouses, then known as shirtwaists. Employees of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company were not allowed to leave the building by the main doors. At the end of the workday, they were required to go to the rear exit door, which was kept locked during the hours of operation for fear of theft. Here, the employees were routinely searched before leaving, lest they try to steal something. Since the young ladies who worked in the sweatshop only knew this one exit to get out in the event of a fire, terrible things occurred on these rear stairs. March 25, 1911 was a Saturday and a fine day according to all accounts. Most sweatshop workers in the city were released by lunchtime for their Saturday half-day off, including those who worked on the lower seven floors of the Ash Building. However, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company kept most of their employees hard at work until 5 p.m. Most of the factory employees, nearly 500 women and 100 or so men, were at work that day. Most of the women were very young, ages 16 to 23, and very few of them spoke English. They were largely Italian, German, Russian, and Hungarian immigrants, and many of them were the primary wage earners for their families. The men employed there worked mostly in the capacity of office workers and management. Around 4.40 p.m., just 10 minutes before the end of the workday, cries of fire rang out on the eighth floor. No one ever learned exactly how the fire started, but most speculated that it was caused by a carelessly discarded cigarette or match. Within a few minutes, flames were pouring from windows at the top three floors of the Ash Building. Four fire alarms were sounded immediately, but the fire was already so intense that the first five women to jump to their deaths did so before even the first fire truck had arrived. Of the two elevators in the building, only one was in working order. A few minutes after the fire began, the only stairwell was full of flames and smoke, making it impossible to flee using that route. Thomas Gregory, an elevator operator from another building who was on his way home that day, ran into the building and made three more trips with the elevator before it broke down. He described leaving masses of terrified, panic-stricken people trying to fight their way onto the elevator, but was only able to take 15 or so people on each trip. Even though the elevator was no longer operating, the shaft doors were forced open and several people attempted to escape by sliding down the elevator cables. At least two people were successful in their attempt. A young woman, later pulled from the shaft alive, said she passed out on her way down the cables and had no memory of what happened next, but she believed that she survived because she landed on several of the dead bodies of her fellow workers, which cushioned her fall. Another man reported using the same cables to flee. Unfortunately, as he slid down, the body of a young woman falling from above knocked him from the cables and he fell the final few floors. After the fire, 25 bodies were pulled from the bottom of the elevator shaft, many of whom had simply jumped to their deaths to escape the flames. 
Both Harris and Blank, the building's owners, were in the building when the fire started, along with Blank's children and their nanny. All escaped by making their way to the roof, a means of escape that was not known to most of the factory workers. The doors to the roof were kept locked on all but the top floor. About 200 workers did eventually make their way to the roof, most of them from the 10th floor. The New York University Law School building was located just across a small courtyard but was one story higher. As the fire raged, several law students led by Charles Kramer and Elias Cantor rushed to the aid of the victims. They tied two short ladders together so that the victims could climb to the roof of their building. Kremer climbed down onto the lower roof to help them up the ladder, and in this way they were able to save 150 men, women, and girls. Kremer then made his way down into the 10th floor to look for more survivors. He saw only one young girl, her hair ablaze. She ran toward him screaming and then fainted in his arms. He put out her burning hair, then carried her to safety believing there to be no one else surviving left behind on that floor. Meanwhile, at the other end of the roof, about 50 people had gathered and were fighting to scale the five feet to the roof of the adjoining building. Several of the law students reported seeing men kicking and biting the women and girls, knocking them out of the way as they escaped to safety. After the fire department arrived, many attempts were made to save trapped or falling victims. Unfortunately, their ladders only reached a little above the sixth floor. Several people tried to jump to the ladders, but none were able to catch hold and all fell to their deaths. Safety nets were also employed, but to little or no avail. The great height was just too much, and many of the nets split or were shredded as bodies fell through them, crashing to the pavement. In one case, a young girl was caught in a net but three others who jumped just after landed on her and all four toppled onto the ground, dead. A few bystanders tried to stretch blankets or tarps, but the results were nearly all the same. The number of people saved in this manner could be counted on one hand. One woman fell with such force that she ripped through a safety net and crashed through the thick glass vault in the sidewalk, finally coming to rest in the basement of the building. Several rescue workers were injured when falling bodies struck them. People were falling faster than the firefighters could get into position to try and catch them. The firefighters' rescue efforts were further hindered by the growing number of corpses strewn about the sidewalks, making it difficult for them to move the safety nets. The bodies were left lying where they fell until later that evening. As the firefighters were busy fighting the fire, it was believed none of those who had fallen could still be alive. A few hours later, however, a young woman was pulled from a pile of bodies, still breathing. A great cheer arose as she was loaded into an ambulance. Sadly, though, she died a few minutes later. As the upper floors of the building burned, a crowd of thousands gathering in the streets below bore witness to the carnage that was unfolding before them. They screamed in horror as they watched helpless. Many eyewitness reports of the tragic deaths of the people who fell to their deaths from the windows of the Washington Place and Green Street sides soon followed. Some jumped, some were thrown or pushed, and others were forced out by the panic-stricken crowds shoving their way toward the windows. A majority of those who fell did so with burning clothing and hair. 
Some continued to burn as they lay on the sidewalk until they were extinguished by the water dripping down from the fire hoses, their blackened bodies left lying there until late in the evening. Five young women on the Green Street side of the building climbed out onto the windowsill, wrapped their arms around each other, and jumped together. They crashed through the sidewalk cover into the basement, their clothes and hair burning as they fell. Another girl leaped very far out, but her dress got tangled up in some wires and she was left suspended high above as the crowd watched, unable to help. Eventually, her dress burned through and she fell to her death. A man on the same side was seen from an adjacent building, running from window to window, picking up women and throwing them out the windows. Eventually, when no other women were left, he himself climbed onto the ledge, paused a moment, then jumped. It was never known if he believed that there would be nets to catch them or if he was trying to shorten their suffering. A young girl of about 13 was seen hanging by her fingertips from a ninth-floor windowsill for a few minutes. Then the fire reached her fingers and she fell into a waiting net, only to be crushed by two other women who fell immediately after her, adding all three to the death list. Some of the girls who jumped from the Washington Place side crashed through the vault light in the sidewalk. As women continued to fall or jump from the same window, their bodies eventually created a hole nearly five feet in diameter. Later in the evening, firefighters pulled several partially nude and burned bodies from this hole. Another pair of girls climbed out of a window on the ninth floor, overlooking Green Street. The older of the two seemed calm and composed as she tried to subdue the younger girl as she shrieked and twisted with fright. As the crowd called to them not to jump, the older girl wrapped her arms around her and pulled her back toward the building. The younger girl, in her panic, twisted free, took a few steps away, and then she jumped. The older girl remained standing on the ledge until the flames came so close that her hair was scorched. She looked skyward, placed her arms to her sides, and jumped straight down, feet first. Her name was Bertha Weintraut, and she was the girl who was later found alive, if only for a few minutes, buried amid a pile of corpses on the sidewalk. Six girls, after getting to a window on the ninth floor, made their way out onto an eight-inch wide ledge that ran the length of the building. Slowly, they edged their way along this ledge, more than 100 feet above the ground toward a swinging electric cable. When all had arrived, they grabbed the cable simultaneously in an attempt to swing to the safety of the adjacent building. The cable snapped as they swung out and all six perished below. A few windows down on the same floor, a man and a woman appeared on the sill. The man kissed, then hugged the woman, threw her to the street, and jumped himself. Both were killed. Just around the corner, from another window, a young girl, a man and a woman, and two other women with their arms wrapped around each other leaped to the ground together. The young girl was found alive after her fall and was rushed to the hospital where she died upon arrival. A small group of men tried to make a human bridge between the burning building and the window of another building. They were successful in saving a number of women, but eventually the weight of the women became too great and the bridge broke the center man tumbling to the ground with a broken back. The fire was extinguished within an hour, 
and by 7 p.m., less than two hours after it started, firefighters were able to force their way up the stairs and into the burned floors. They reported that 50 roasted bodies were found on the ninth floor alone. The charred bodies of 19 victims were found piled against locked doors, and 25 more were found huddled together in a cloakroom. Each body, as it was found, was carefully lifted from the burned surroundings, wrapped in cloth, and hoisted to the ground using a pulley system. They were then taken to one of a hundred wooden coffins lining the street. The bodies were then moved to the morgue at Bellevue Hospital or the Charities Pier Morgue. One unnamed reporter wrote in the New York Times that the remains of the dead, it is hardly possible to call them bodies because that would suggest something human, and there was nothing human about most of these, were being taken in a steady stream to the morgue for identification. Fire Chief Edward F. Croker, one of the first men to re-enter the building following the fire, left the building in obvious distress, stating that in all his years he had never seen anything like what he had seen on those upper floors. The police estimated that as many as 200,000 people, devastated family and friends as well as the morbidly curious public, entered the makeshift morgue at the pier and filed past the over 100 wooden coffins containing bodies that had been recovered. They walked past the bodies that were at least partially recognizable in the hope of finding a lost loved one. Tens of thousands were turned away by the police in an attempt to keep more of the general public away. Over 40 human forms too badly burned to be recognizable were covered with a white canvas tarp with the hopes that they might be identified through trinkets, jewelry, or articles of clothing. Stories of unbelievable anguish were published in newspapers across the country. A young girl was identified by a family heirloom signet ring found clinging to the charred flesh of a badly burned body. A young woman screamed as she collapsed after identifying her fiancé by his ring, having become engaged only the night before. She asked if a watch had been found with the body. When she was given the watch, she opened it and gazed upon her own portrait. A man having waited in line for over five hours identified his daughters by their clothing. After collapsing with grief, he attempted to kill himself on the spot. He was restrained by police until he calmed down enough to continue looking for his wife, also lost in the fire. A man with a fresh burn on his cheek identified his brother. He told the police that he and his brother had fought the fire, standing side by side with buckets of water. A man who had barely escaped with his own life identified his fiancée by her engagement ring. In her hand, she still clutched her handbag. Her weekly wages of $3 remained inside, intact. A sobbing brother stumbled away from the mangled bodies of his two sisters, left propped up in their coffins to search for their mother. The fire took his entire family. As a growing number of people became hysterical or suicidal, a makeshift hospital was set up at the pier to deal with this unexpected problem. Doctors and nurses from Bellevue Hospital worked for days trying to help keep those grieving family members from being added to the list of lives stolen by the fire. 31 victims remained unidentified after the last of the survivors claimed their family and friends. The Hebrew Free Burial Association paid for the burial of 23 of these victims in a special section of Mount Richmond Cemetery. 
the remaining eight bodies were interred in the Cemetery of the Evergreens in Brooklyn. As the blaze began, the only safety measures within the ash building available to those still inside were 27 buckets of water and one fire escape that collapsed almost immediately. Most of the exits were locked, and those that weren't opened inward so that they remained closed under the crush of people pushing toward the doors. It was not the 95 charred bodies found inside the building that so outraged the public, but rather the heaps of bodies along the sidewalk and rows of mostly young girls lying dead in the street. By the end, 53 people had jumped, fallen, or were pushed from the upper floors, and thousands of people were there to witness each one of them fall and strike the pavement. The average age of those killed in the fire was 19. The public outrage was carried like a wave across the country as reports and pictures of the tragedy appeared in newspapers everywhere. The resulting public pressure proved to be too much to overcome, and dramatic changes were in store for the existing fire codes and their enforcement in the workplace. The New York State Legislature formed the Factory Commission in 1911, which developed many requirements linked directly back to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire such as all exit doors must be left unlocked during operating hours, and sprinklers were to be installed if a factory employed more than 25 people. The memories of the young women who perished in that terrible fire resulted in a major change in the way many people thought about protecting workers. Prior to the fire, the government left businesses alone regarding the safety of their workers. Afterwards, the government had little choice but to begin instituting sweeping safety laws that changed history for American workers. In the end, no one was held accountable for the Triangle deaths. In December of 1911, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the Ash Building owners and Triangle Shirtwaist Company owners, were charged and tried for manslaughter. Despite a mob of people outside the courthouse chanting, murderers, murderers, the two were acquitted of all charges by the jury after only two hours of deliberation. 23 individual civil suits for damages against the company were settled for an average of $75 per life lost. Blank and Isaac completed their association with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory by filling an insurance claim in excess of their losses, garnering them a profit from the fire of more than $60,000, a hefty sum in 1911. Blank continued on in the clothing manufacturing business he opened another factory on Fifth Avenue. In 1913, just two years after the Triangle Fire, he was arrested for locking the exit door in his factory during working hours. He was fined $20. The Ash Building still stands at the corner of Washington Place and Green Street, but its name has been changed to the Brown Building. No longer are the floors of that building home to sweatshops employing poor and desperate immigrant women and girls overworked and underpaid. Today, the Brown Building is full of young university science students, as it has become a part of the New York University as a science lab, the same university that was located next door and provided a means of escape to nearly 150 people fleeing the fire with the aid of many of the students. On the corner of the building, a plaque has been placed, commemorating the tragic events that took place on that site on March 25th 1911 and the lives lost that day. The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire continues as a turning point in United States history.
there are other reminders of the fire for those who pay close enough attention. Even though the use of the building and the occupants have changed dramatically, bits and pieces of its history still linger, many of these believed to be supernatural. It's not uncommon for the smell of smoke to waft through the halls of the upper floors, and more than once, fire warnings have passed through the building. On occasion, people have reported a different kind of odor accompanying the smell of smoke. This odor can only be described as that of burning flesh. Then the odors simply disappear as quickly as they began. Often doors that are supposed to be locked are found unlocked, sometimes within minutes of being locked. Could it be that the spirit of someone lost in the fire is trying to keep the current occupants from meeting the same tragic fate by being trapped behind a locked door in an emergency? A few people over the years have described a most peculiar experience. While sitting at a desk or workstation, they've seen, out of the corner of their eye, something large flutter downward past their window. Upon going to the window to look down and see what it was, there is nothing there. The most striking ghostly experience was related by Susan, not her real name, a secretary who worked in the building for many years. She explained that she had been working later than usual one evening, and by the time she left to go home, most of the other employees and students had already left. As she walked out of the building, she noticed a young woman walk past her with a slight stagger and a dazed look on her face. She was very dirty, and her hair and clothes appeared to be singed or burned. Susan called to her to see if she needed help, but the young woman didn't respond. She just kept walking and turned the corner. Susan, thinking that the woman might be injured or in trouble, ran after her, but upon turning the corner she was met by an empty sidewalk. The young woman had simply vanished. We will never know for sure if these occurrences are directly related to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. However, it does appear that the most important thing is that we never forget what happened there, nor the lessons learned. We may even get a little reminder now and then just to make sure. I've been working at a local Good Sense Subs in my town for almost two years now. This specific store has been experiencing strange phenomenon since before I started my work. Co-workers have claimed to be touched, heard their names called, and even seen strange apparitions. I wasn't a believer until I kept hearing my name being called, though the most horrifying thing happened to me on Easter about a year ago. I was told by management to come in and lay out the bread that would be baked the next day, and reluctantly agreed. No one wanted to come into the store alone. At about 7 o'clock that Easter night, I entered the store. It wasn't so bad, kind of relaxing, or so I thought. I was able to lay out the first tray of bread when I noticed it. As I was closing the freezer door, I saw what looked to be a face peering at me from around the corner in the store office. I jumped, not expecting to see a form, and it disappeared. Frightened slightly, I continued to lay out bread. I then heard an odd scraping noise. Immediately, I armed myself with the closest bread knife I could. Studying the area, I saw the face again. This prompted a full search of the store for intruders. 
but I found nothing. This is the single most frightening incident I have ever experienced, and I refused for months to be alone in the store at all. I've had several unusual experiences throughout my life. I like to say unusual instead of paranormal because of the skeptic in me. However, the most recent one occurred two years ago. At this time, my then-fiancé, now husband, and I had moved in with my in-laws in order to save for our wedding and for college. I had two experiences at this house. My first experience occurred when I was home by myself. I'd just gotten out of the shower and across our narrow hallway to our bedroom. I dropped the towel to get dressed. I then heard a door handle jiggle somewhere inside the house. I instinctively picked up the towel to save everyone any embarrassment. I called out, hello, to see who had come home, but no one ever answered. I then walked out of the bedroom and searched the house, looking out into the driveway, but no one had come home. The second experience occurred when I was home with my in-laws. My husband was at band practice. We were in the living room watching TV. They have a large sectional couch. The shorter end of the I-shape faces directly into the hallway. Whoever sits in this area can turn their head and stare directly into the long hallway. Anyway, I was sitting in this spot when I turned my head to look for our dogs. When I turn my head, I see what I can best describe as a shadow cross from my bedroom to another room that's located directly across the hallway from my bedroom. It wasn't exactly a shadow, but a figure that had a few features of a person. It's difficult to describe because it looked soft and blurry like it was out of focus. I wondered for a second what my husband was doing before I remembered that he was at a practice across town. I turned to my in-laws and said, I think I just saw something cross from one room to the other. My father-in-law simply stated, Oh, yeah, that happens sometimes. I told them I could have done with a warning. When you think of a mother, you think of someone who loves you unconditionally, a person to whom you've given your absolute trust. But what happens when that trust is violated again and again in the most grievous of ways? And what if the woman who tucks you in at night is a mother, a murderer, and a monster? Such was the case for the six children of Teresa Knorr life in the Knorr house had never been stable. A raging alcoholic, a negligent wife, and an abusive mother, Teresa Knorr had burned her way through four marriages by the time she was 30 years old. But it was her last divorce from Chet Harris, finalized the same year they wed, that sent her past the brink of madness. Suddenly, Teresa's drinking increased. Her neurosis worsened. Her violent behaviors escalated. Envious of her two eldest daughters, Teresa directed the brunt of her abuse at Sheila and Susan, 
both girls met gruesome ends at their mother's hands. In 1984, Teresa burned Susan alive with the help of her teenage sons, Robert and William. Several unsuccessful murder attempts preceded the incident – a shot in the back, a stabbing, and a crude operation with an X-Acto knife. Teresa's motivation? She believed Susan had used magic to make her gain weight. Sheila was killed only a year later, after being locked in a closet without food or water for three days. Again, Teresa made wild claims to justify her actions. And again, Robert and William served as her brainwashed accomplices. After years of silence, Terry, the youngest of the Noor children, courageously brought her story to America's Most Wanted in 1993. An investigation was launched soon thereafter, in which her mother received two consecutive life sentences. At last, Teresa Noor was brought to justice but the scars she'd left behind would never fade. Back at the house on Bellingham Way, Teresa grew more reclusive, more unpredictable and more violent, but nobody outside of her immediate family knew anything about it. Though she had always been hard on her children, it was her last husband who finally turned her into a monster. She really went over the edge with Chet Harris, said Terry. After Harris, she dated for a little while, but then she got to the point where she wouldn't date or remarry or nothing. Terry's older brothers, William and Robert, agreed, recalling that their mother's gradual transformation from angry disciplinarian to raging eccentric took place in the late 1970s. Sometime around when I turned 10 or 11 or so, she started becoming abusive, real short-tempered, William recalled. She stopped going out, seeing friends at all on any level. She got rid of the telephone because she didn't want any people calling. We weren't allowed to have anybody inside the house. When I was growing up, I hated the Brady Bunch because I knew that nobody lived like that, said Robert. I knew that because I knew what my family life was like. Nothing could be more different from the truth than that TV show. I grew up in an insane asylum, basically. But what's worse is we didn't know it was an insane asylum, he continued. I never really admitted or even knew that I was being abused or that my family was being abused because I thought it was normal. And yet, as far as the neighbors knew, the Knorr family was no different from any other. Not that I want to say that they were private, but they stayed to themselves, said Janet Garrett, who lived next door. It was difficult to strike up a conversation with the mother. She just didn't want to, it seemed like. You try a few times, and after two or three times, you just say, okay, you just give up. Teresa's changing behavior even went undetected by the neighborhood kids, who generally had a closer view of their friends' private lives than their parents. Not having a father figure around, that was the only thing about their family that seemed different, said Janet's son, Chris Garrett. He was the same age as Terry Knorr and went to her house to play from time to time. Once he went to her birthday party, a party at which he noticed that he was the only non-family member. Terry's mom wasn't the silent type, he recalled. In fact, she was real talkative. Kept to herself, but talkative when you talked to her. Even so, I don't remember her ever saying anything that you could call off the wall. But Terry's mom was definitely different from the other moms in the neighborhood. I'll say this about her, Garrett added. Terry's mom definitely had control of the kids. 
I didn't see a lot of backtalk or argument coming out of any of them. If they were told to be in by a certain time, they were in. If they were told to do something, they did it. They never asked questions. They never made a point to second-guess authority. When my mother got drunk, she used to lick the ends of steak knives, Terry recalled. Serrated-edged knives, and she threw them at us to see if her aim was good. Knives weren't Teresa's only deadly playthings when she'd had a little too much to drink. Terry still blanches, remembering the chill in her mother's voice one evening when she went in to say goodnight. Eyes half-closed, the mother sat in a deep chair in the living room and motioned for Terry to approach. In her drunken stupor, Teresa howled at her shivering but stoic young daughter, boasting of that defining moment nearly 15 years earlier when she pointed a gun at Clifford Sanders and pulled the trigger. She owned two guns, a Derringer and a revolver, Terry recalled. At one point, she took out the bone-handled old cowboy gun. It looked like a toy, but it was a real six-shooter, a 22 pistol. Aiming the pistol at her daughter, Teresa told Terry, I shot once and I can do it again. Terry froze, standing terrified before her. And she told me to come to her, and I did, Terry said with a shudder, remembering. And she put the gun to my head, so hard that the next morning I woke up and still had a knot from where the barrel had sunk into my temple. Teresa's children may have accepted this dictatorial isolation, but they didn't understand it. They complained about not being able to have friends over, but if they whined too much about it, they were slapped into silence. They did not see the gradual evaporation of their contact with the outside world as the logical result of shutting themselves inside the house. Instead, Teresa's children saw the neighbors distancing from their mother and themselves as indifference and an unwillingness to get involved. Our neighbors backed off, said Terry. They knew better than to mess with our family. Everybody shuts their eyes. Nobody wants to get involved. The Nor children's blind obedience to their mother stemmed from a constant state of terror that remained invisible to the Garretts and everyone else who lived along Bellingham Way. Even in the early stages, the terror was so bizarre and their mother so skilled at keeping it in the family, it would have taken more than simple curiosity on the part of the neighbors to uncover what was going on. Had the Garretts or any of the other neighbors known about it, Terry wonders even today if they would have done anything. If you want to hear more Weird Darkness, you might want to consider becoming a patron. You'll get archive episodes, personal videos, and more. Also, Marlar House patrons now can hear chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Currently, I'm narrating the horror novel Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and you can start listening right from Chapter 1 if you are a patron, and you'll get new chapters to listen to as I record them until the book is finished and officially published then the entire book will disappear from my Patreon page, so you'll want to listen to the chapters while they are still available. Learn more about becoming a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. I'd also like to give a few shout-outs to those who have left podcast reviews recently on Apple Podcasts. R. Staten said, Surprised! Other paranormal podcasts I have listened to disappointed me. 
Now it's time to start binge listening. Love the podcast. Stephanie Harvey said, Phenomenal storyteller. Darren Marlar is the, in my opinion, world's best storyteller. He has the voice for this genre that places you right smack in the middle of the story. I love the action, intrigue, mystery, and suspense that radiates through his podcasts. Truly a rare find in a teller of stories. Loving it. I just can't get enough weird darkness. Thanks, Darren Marlar. Signed, a fellow weirdo and forever subscriber, Stephanie Harvey. Tanith's World from Australia said, I've been immersed in horror most of my life and have a family history of paranormal. I love weird darkness for making my school runs riveting, but also for validating the fact that normal people can be a part of the paranormal and it is totally acceptable. We can be weird and normal. Your podcast is extremely well-read, well-researched, and well-balanced. And Demaldi said, Love it. Love the voice, love the stories. I don't even know how many times I've binge-listened to this podcast, but nobody can stop me. Thank you very much for all the reviews, people. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to leave a review, it actually helps the show to spread to others. Apple Podcasts sees those reviews, and the more the show gets, the more attention Apple Podcasts gives us in promoting it to other podcast listeners. By the way, I've added another event to my quickly growing list of film festivals and Comic-Cons that I'll be a part of. I have just been accepted as a special guest of the Imaginarium Convention in Louisville, Kentucky, coming up in early October, where I'll actually be a part of several panels there. If you're in the Peoria, Illinois area, you'll also want to check out one of the events I'm a sponsor for. It's the Laugh or Die Comedy Fest. That's May 19th, with 13 straight hours dedicated to independent comedy films and entertainment. And then on June 9th, I'm a sponsor of the New Orleans Comic Con. There'll be dozens and dozens of special guests there, talented artists, and much more. You can find a list of all the events that I'm a part of in the days and months to come by clicking on the Events tab at WeirdDarkness.com, or you can click the link that I've included in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. My Haunted In-Laws Place by Anna Olenek was submitted to WeirdDarkness.com and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. We Deliver, We Cater, We Scare was written by Ian White, also submitted to WeirdDarkness.com and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Death in the Triangle, The History, Hauntings, and Horrors of America's Worst Factory Fire was written by Troy Taylor and Renee Cruz from their book And Hell Followed With It. And the Mother Who Burned Her Daughter Alive was written by Dennis McDougall from his book, Mother's Day. Again, you can find links to all of those in the show notes. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. All music was used with permission, all rights reserved. You can find a link to both Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony in the show notes. And if you like stories of dumb criminals, idiot celebrities, stupid politicians, and other oddballs and strangeness, be sure to check out my other podcast, at dailydoseofweirdnews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.
Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, you'll get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway. That's a $72 value per year. No other provider offers this. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. 